You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. To err is human, to forgive divine. So says Alexander Pope, 18th century poet, in his rare poetic essay, An Essay on Criticism, Part 2. Most essays are written prosaically, hence our expectations so disturbed we might fault Pope for having surprised and confused us. Transferring the embarrassment of a surprise from ourselves to him has some advantages, but greater advantages are had from embracing rather than criticizing this work regarding criticism. That really is the point, after all. For every single writer, ten critics wait in the wings, and too often, Those critics, joyless in their outlook, rob joy from others, even as they criticize for the sake of criticizing. So what if Pope wrote his essay in poetic form? Perhaps that is not a mistake, as Bob Ross would say, merely a happy little accident. And where is it written that persuasive essays have to be prosaic rather than poetic, mathematical rather than artistic? In every man, woman, and child, there is both a head and a heart. Some live the life of the mind, while others are carried along by the wind wherever their emotions take them. But if we, as writers and critics, can endeavor to show up as the whole person, both head and heart, in whatever our hand finds to do as unto the Lord, that is much better than half-heartedness and half-baked ideas. Once upon a time, before my wife Lauren was Lauren Mullet, back when she was Lauren Duff, she had a Yahoo email address. Antiacour at yahoo.com is where I sent my letters to her when I did not handwrite them. And when I first asked her to be my girl in high school, it was over Yahoo Messenger. And it was to Antiacour that I messaged. That was her name. And that was how I knew her. And that was, whether I knew it at the time, a large part of why I loved her. If I had taken French instead of Spanish as my second language, and if I had tried to dress to match her after a fashion... I might have called myself Antier Esprit, whole mind, for I was living the life of the mind, and I still am. But how much better am I to be completed, challenged, encouraged to a full heart in addition to a full mind? It is not good that the man should be alone, the Lord God says in Genesis, when first a thing that is not good is commented on by the supreme judge and creator of the universe and mankind. I will make a helpmeet suitable for him. Just so, I imagined that God looked on a young Garrett Mullet much the way he looks on this now older self of mine, commenting in high heaven that it is not good for me to be alone and that a helpmeet suitable for me has been fashioned and provided. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. It is July 30th, 2021, episode 113 of season three, episode 178 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, your host, intrepid, perhaps, daring, bold, sometimes, by turn, taciturn, double-minded sometimes, half-hearted other times, but the goal should be to be wholehearted and to be singular after a fashion, in a sense, singular in person, a whole person, not divided, Not double-minded, as 
James, brother of Jesus, says in the epistle that bears his name. Anyone who asks God for wisdom, we read, should believe and not doubt, because the man who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed and blown. If we believe that we will receive wisdom from God, God promises he will give us wisdom, but we must believe and not doubt. There's a story in the Gospels in which Jesus is asked by man to do a certain thing, a miraculous thing, a supernatural thing, and Jesus responds to the man, I can if you believe. And the man replies to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. That is such a beautiful picture of how we ought to come to God saying, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Because in that, we can admit that we struggle and are not whole. We are not entire. We are not entier. We are not complete. We're broken. By God's grace, he sends people into our lives from time to time who are there to encourage us, challenge us, And how we relate in those situations, those opportunities, those relationships to those people decides whether or not we make full benefit of the blessing that God has brought into our lives. And I think now of my wife, who is wholehearted, and myself, who endeavors to live the life of the mind. That piece that I read for you before the official opening, my standard semi-scripted start of every podcast. That is my submission for Ingladii Veritas, the sort of truth this evening. I haven't completed it, so speaking of being wholehearted, whole-minded, I have not completed that. It is half done, and yet, in a sense, having 500 words out of a 1,000 is symbolic of what it is that I'm talking about. Imagine a sentence half begun and left unfinished. What good is that to the person who is trying to understand what it is that you're saying? Imagine a person half begun, half completed, and yet stopping short of completion, of wholeness. God makes us whole, and by his grace, in Christ, he makes us holy and sets us apart. And it is only by setting us apart that we are able to become whole again and remain whole, because we live in a broken creation which would endeavor to continue breaking us. I happen to believe, call me old-fashioned if you will, in the reality, the existence of an enemy of our souls, the devil. I happen to believe that as real as you and I are, so also is the devil real. And I don't think that we should blame him for absolutely everything. And I don't believe that it is healthy for us to say the devil made us do it when we sin or do something foolish or say something we ought not to say. And yet, In order to be a believer, 
of God's word, we have to believe that Satan does exist and that he seeks to devour us. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And there is an importance to remembering that. I happen also to believe that we have the world, the flesh, and the devil to contend with as we, as Christians, on our Christian journey through life, individual but also corporate, temporal but also eternal, have to be set apart in order to not be consumed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. By God's grace, there is power, there is redemption, there is salvation, there is justification, there is purification. And all of these things God is doing in mysterious ways, in ways which sometimes confound our reason, and other times try our emotions. Yesterday, I came home from work, a bit tired, a bit spent, a bit troubled, a bit weary. And I came into the home, and I looked at what had been not done, and I keyed in on that, and I was discontented. And I'm talking with my wife about what it is that has not been done, and that is all I have time for, that is all I have attention for, and I said little to nothing about what had been done. And I wondered to myself this morning as I wake up and begin a fresh day, thinking on yesterday and how can today be better than yesterday was, I think to myself, I am too much like the critics Alexander Pope is dealing with in his essays on criticism published in the 18th century, the early 18th century, I think to myself, I am too much like those critics and not enough like that poet in this one key regard. I see what could be different first. And I don't always appreciate the beauty and the goodness and the truth of what is. I've been reading through the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, also published hundreds of years ago, this time in the 17th century. And I find myself challenged continuously as I go through the book to examine my head and my heart, my ideas and my emotions, for whether there is contentment towards God and contentment in my circumstances, and contentment in whatever it is that God has ordained. And as I examine that, I don't always like what I see and what I realize. I don't have to agree with every last jot and tittle of what Burroughs writes as a Puritan preacher of some note. I don't have to agree with all of his comments. He isn't writing scripture, but he does, in a devotional sort of way, unpack a lot of scripture and deep dive on this question of contentment. And he explores quite a lot how our relationship with God either blossoms or 
is starved, is quenched, is set back by our contentedness, our thankfulness, our recognition in a worshipful fashion for what God has given us. If we think always of what God has not given us, and we never think or rarely think of what it is that God has given us, we are foolish and we miss out on the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of God's plans for us. And this is a large part of what I believe God is getting at when he answers Job the way he does, for instance. This is a large part of what God is getting at when Christ promises us that there will be trials in this life and that persecution will come. I happen to believe that this is a large part of what James, the brother of Jesus, is getting at when he tells us to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds, for we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. We miss very often in trying circumstances that there is a God in heaven who sovereignly rules and reigns over all, and that that God has seen fit to either orchestrate or permit what is happening to us and around us. If we think we have too much of a certain thing and that causes us distress, does God think that we have too much of that thing or has he given us that amount of the thing for a good purpose? Has he allowed us to have what we think of as too much of a certain thing for a good purpose If we think we don't have enough of another thing or the quality and the nature of the thing that we have is not what we would prefer, are we like petulant children sometimes in complaining that we would prefer in our infinite wisdom something else? Burroughs gets into that at length over and over from every possible angle. And the conclusion I come to about myself is that I can be a petulant child sometimes. Now, this isn't to say that you don't comment on what needs to be improved. If you planted a garden and the vegetables are being choked out by weeds, you have to reckon with the weeds. But how foolish would it be to take a flamethrower to your garden for the sake of getting the weeds out. You lose the vegetables too. And if that is your approach, and you're going to be ham-fisted about it, you might be better to sit quietly and let things develop as they will. You will get more vegetables that way than you will torching your garden. If you have a relationship with someone and you love them dearly, You have to tell them what is good and what you appreciate and what you enjoy about them. And this is a conversation I was just having with a friend of mine, a Christian brother here recently, where we were talking about marriage and his marriage specifically and how he comments to his wife 
on certain things he thinks she should be more rational about. And she is more sentimental about these things. And that she is more sentimental, he is frustrated, and that he is more rational, she is frustrated, and she feels like all he does is criticize. Moreover, she feels like he does not respect her. And consequently, he feels frustrated because he thinks his criticisms, his rational feedback is constructive, helpful, well-intentioned, and it should be well-received. But then again, don't we all give ourselves a little more grace than we give those around us? She may, although I haven't talked with her and I have no intention of doing so, I do not feel so called, so led, but she may, I suspect, think that in her being sentimental, she is justified and that he is the one being cruel or uncaring because he is not as sentimental as she is in the ways that she is about the things she is sentimental. And just so, he thinks, perhaps, in his heart of hearts, whatever he would protest, that she is not quite so rational as he is in the ways that she is rational. She is more sentimental, and the sentimentality overwhelms her rational faculties, and she needs his rationality brought to the fore. But what if God has put them together so that he does not lose sight of the sentiment and she does not lose sight of the reason, and together they are one flesh with a portion of the Spirit between them? What if that is God's good design and there's a blessing to be found in contentedness toward that. If a very sentimental gardener sees some weeds in a reasoned argument and takes a flamethrower to the whole business, they miss out on the fruit. They miss out on the vegetables. They miss out on a harvest in due season at the proper time. Sometimes good ideas have not fully matured, but they will if we give them a chance. Sometimes proper sentiments are not appreciated for their value, for their worth, for their needfulness, because we can't see below the surface to that carrot, to that turnip, to that radish. Sometimes we think we see all that will be when we look at what is. And yet, if we were to dig down and pull the thing out before it's time, it would cease growing as it needs to, and we would not get the enjoyment from it ever. And if we went around plucking up all of the things which have not yet grown to maturity, because we had plucked up one foolishly, because we had not planted it, and we had designs to plant something else in that place, then we become nutrient deficient. Suppose I made a habit of eating only meat, no vegetables, no fruits. I've known people that are this way. Would I have a balanced diet? Or would I potentially have some health problems 
from eating only meat all the time, if I ate only vegetables all the time, would I potentially not get the protein that my body needs? Would I potentially be somewhat anemic? All my food boiled, drinking only the juices, but never having to chew. Would I be as well-nourished and strong and productive and fruitful myself if I went on like that? I dare say I wouldn't. But if God has given meats for us to eat, I am thankful for that, particularly where bacon is concerned, where steaks are concerned, where meatballs on spaghetti are concerned. And if God has given vegetables for us to eat, the vegetables help to balance out the meats. And if there's a little bit of fruit topping a dessert at the end of the meal, all the better still. If you take a little bit of spice, you sprinkle that on this cut of meat and those vegetables, sprinkle a little sugar on the dessert, then you have a complete meal. But how many good cooks cook first and foremost based on all of the things they don't like the taste of? How many painters paint only in negative space and come out with a rich picture? I think so also, God designed us to be needful of others around us. We see that picture in the New Testament when Paul writes about the body of Christ and spiritual gifts. He does not give all of the spiritual gifts to any one person. And this is on purpose. This is not an oversight. This is not God being short-sighted, forgetful, misplacing things. It's not an injustice on his part that he does not give us all equal ability, equal gifts for equal outcomes all around. But what does Paul say to the church at Corinth? He says he gives gifts to the body in different members so that they have need for one another and that it is not good when the different members of the body say to one another, I have no need of you because you do not have my gift. That is not good. It is not God's intention that we be so self-sufficient that we have no need for him and we have no need for the church and we have no need for our friends and family. That is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. That is the first thing that God says is not good in the entirety of creation, so far as we know. It's certainly the first thing that's recorded as God having said was not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet suitable for him. And there's a little bit of a mystery to it. As much like poetry, or more so than like math, there's a little bit of a mystery to it, which I happen to believe God's good design is for us to explore our whole life long. Sometimes my wife does not appreciate my rationality, my extended reasoning. Sometimes I don't appreciate her sentimentality, her compassion. Sometimes 
however, that is all the more proof that she and I both need to go back to God and look at his purpose for why I have these traits, she has those traits, and how can we reflect the goodness of God from a point of contentedness and joy and thankfulness and gladness by embracing those differences in one another. I'm not talking about one of us suggesting something wicked or foolish and both of us saying, ah, yes, that's very good. But I am saying this idea of being one flesh, one body with different parts, complementing one another, helping one another, serving God, even as we appreciate our differences and work toward a common goal and a common purpose. There's a beautiful thing which God is trying when he puts us together, and that good thing is mysterious. It's kind of like math. It's kind of like science. It's kind of like art. It's life, and life is an art and a science. When we write, just like when we speak, just like when we develop and nurture our relationships with one another, we should do so from the point of contentedness toward God and a trust in God's sovereignty, his providence, his wisdom, his goodness. Without that requisite trust and contentedness, how can we prosper? Imagine I opened up the hood of my car and I said, I don't know what this thing here does. I don't need that. I'm going to carefully unfasten it and remove it from the engine compartment, set it on the curb. And I do this after the briefest of reflections, without study, without consulting the person who put it in there, the, the instruction manual. Why is this in here? I don't think to ask. That's folly. If I had a car which no longer functioned on the other end, I would only have myself to blame. Now, sometimes parts get broken, yes, and you should replace them. I just replaced the air filter on my work truck night before last. It was dirty. It was broken. It was not working. It needed replacing. So also, the box that contained the air filter had somehow gotten out of sorts. It was supposed to be secured to a piece of metal bracing, and it had come detached. Two grommets were supposed to connect this box, and somehow, some way, the grommets had popped out. And now the air intake was disconnected from the opening in this box. So as I drove, dust, bugs, mud, water from rainstorms, all of that was getting up into the air filter and all because the air intake wasn't connected. It was close, but not close enough. Pointing that out when the vehicle starts to have a little trouble or it will, that is the proper kind of criticism and it's needful. Then fix it. But 
he gives more grace. That's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.